Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hey everyone, this is Michael Turtlewatt, and I'm glad to be here with you again on Pickled Parables. Today I get to walk us through 1 Peter 1, 13 through 2, 12. And I think what we'll see is that Peter believes our conduct as Christians is hugely important to God. And this belief sets up much of what Peter covers in the rest of his letter. Now, hopefully the idea that Christian conduct is important isn't news to you. Hopefully Paul's great rhetorical question and answer from Romans 6, 1 through 2 comes screaming to mind. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or maybe Galatians 5.13, For you have been called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The New Testament is uniformly clear that Christians are to resist the tug of our old sin nature that still seeks to trip us up and strive to, by the Spirit, live into the new nature we've received in Christ. But why? Why, if all sin is forgiven on the basis of the grace extended to us in Christ, why does it matter how we live? We can see some reasoning in the verses I quoted above. For instance, to go on sinning after being saved just doesn't make sense any more than it would make sense to to be rescued from a burning building only to turn around and run back in. Sin is deadly. Sin is slavery. And so we are not called to grace so that we can sin without consequence, but so that we can experience the eternal life of Christ, which is the antithesis of sin. But Peter gives us other reasons in our passage today as to why Christian conduct is so important. However, before we pick up in 1 Peter 1.13, I want to touch on a couple things I think are important from the preceding context of chapter 1. First, I want to remind us who Peter is writing to, who his audience is. And we see this in the first verse of the book. Peter refers to his audience as, quote, elect exiles. Elect exiles. In other words, he's writing to those who have been chosen by God to be a part of his people, elect, but who are currently estranged from their homeland. They're exiles. They are God's people living in a foreign and often hostile culture. This is why we as Christians are elect exiles. And this identity is the foundation for the countercultural living Peter is going to call us to. Second, in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, Peter lays out the glorious salvation to which the elect have been called. And he contrasts it with the difficulties of our current state of exile. He talks about the living hope to which we've been born again and our inheritance, which is kept in heaven that will be revealed in the last time. These are the things he says we are to rejoice in. But of course, 
all of that is in the future. All of that is in the future. So what defines our existence in the here and now? Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, Peter says. Trials that test the genuineness of our faith to the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, the future is bright for Christians, but the present, eh, the present's kind of tough. So when we come to 1 Peter 1.13 and it says, therefore, that word is referring to our identity as elect exiles who have received this great salvation with great future blessing, but who are currently enduring a life in a morally and spiritually inhospitable context. And in light of all that, Peter says this in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 1. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Peter begins this section telling us that we must intentionally and realistically prepare ourselves for the task of our exile. And he again points to the future grace that awaits us as our source of motivation for that task. But what is the task? Well, broadly speaking, it includes a major shift away from our past sinfulness and toward a holiness that reflects God's own holiness. In other words, Our task as exiles is to live differently than the world around us, or at least differently than those in the world who have not yet experienced the grace and salvation found in Jesus. The reasons he gives here behind this shift are that, one, sinful living comes from ignorance. Sinful living is ignorant. And then two, because God has always meant for his people to mirror his character. So the shift is a shift away from ignorance and towards God's character, because that's what God's people have always been meant to reflect. Just as Paul gets at, Peter is pointing to the fact that sin is deadly and enslaving, and so it only makes sense for Christians to resist it once they've had their eyes open to the truth. Life and freedom lie in the righteousness of God, and so it's only natural that Christians would strive to emulate God's holiness. But there's another compelling reason to live well as a Christian, and Peter gets into it in verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is saying that we ought to take tremendous care in living our lives because they were purchased at an unfathomably steep price. My second car, which I drove from about 2005 to 2017, was a 1986 Honda Accord hatchback. Now, by my car, I mean it was the car my parents owned but let me use primarily. And as the youngest of three brothers, my older two brothers had already had stints driving this beauty, during which time my oldest brother Nathan got T-boned. 
he was fine. It wasn't his fault. But he did let the uninsured at-fault driver off the hook. I know. What a good guy. He actually really is. But that meant I drove a car with a three-foot by three-foot dent right behind the passenger side door. Subsequently, this also meant that the handful of other times somebody like bumped into me in a parking lot or something, I didn't really care too much. What's another scratch on a car that's roughly shaped like a boomerang, right? So the point is, it was a cheaply bought beater car, so I didn't much care what happened to it as long as I could still open the doors and get from point A to point B. Now, had that 86 Accord been a new Mercedes, I'd have likely felt differently about those parking lot dings, especially if it was technically still my dad's car. And what are the first words out of every teenager in the movies after they steal their dad's fancy car and crash it? My dad's going to kill me, right? Fear is the immediate reaction, and rightly so in, in some ways. Dad's probably not going to be real happy about that. So if using or misusing something of our earthly fathers, as trivial as a car, causes a healthy sense of fear in us, how much more should we have a healthy fear in regards to our conduct as Christians when we consider the price that has been paid for our Christian lives? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 summarizes this idea nicely, saying, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're a Christian, well, really, if you're not a Christian too, but especially if you're a Christian, you should know you are not your own. Your life is not your own. You were ransomed. Someone paid a price to free you from slavery, and it wasn't you who paid it. It was God. And the price he paid was the life of his beloved son, Jesus. Now, while I don't think God wants us to walk through life on eggshells as if there were no grace or forgiveness for failures or mistakes, we ought to have a strong sense of the gift that we have been given in our new life and a sense for the extravagant price that was paid for it. To put it another way, we should live our lives with the same care we would take if we were driving a solid gold Mercedes. Or at least so Peter seems to be saying. God will judge us for how we live according to these verses. But Peter reminds us that how we live is not what we put our faith or hope in ultimately as we anticipate that judgment. He does this by bringing up the grace given favor we enjoy before God in verses 20 through 25. He was foreknown, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 
The New Testament has a lot to say about righteous living. It has a lot to say about making progress in our faith. But it consistently bases that progress on the pre-existing grace-given position of favor we have before God because of Christ's work on our behalf. Remember, Peter started this section dealing with Christian conduct with a big fat therefore, which pointed back to the preceding verses that reminded his leaders of their new birth in Christ. Christ followers are children of God, therefore they should live like it. Our faith and our hope are not in our ability to live up to the standard of Christ. They are in Christ who lived up to the standard for us. That's why Peter concludes this section with this reminder of that truth before moving on in chapter 2 with verses 1 through 8, where he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The first three verses in this chapter are another admonition to put away the old way of living and to grow up in the new life that has been given. But then, Peter does something really interesting in verses 4 through 8. He redefines the worship of God. It's important to recognize that this is Peter, a Jew, writing to churches that were likely majority Gentile. And yet, he says in these verses that they have become the place, the mediators, and the sacrifices of worship to God. These are the three major components of the Jewish religion. The temple as the place of worship, the priesthood as the group of men set apart to be the mediators between man and God in worship, and the sacrificial system as the primary activity of worship. Peter says the church has taken the place of all three. And this has profound implications concerning why it's so important that we live holy lives as Christians. First, the place of worship has become wherever Christians are. The biggest attribute associated with the temple in the Old Testament was holiness. The temple was to be a place set apart as dedicated to God, organized and maintained according to his precise specifications as a place for him to meet with his people. Now, it is the lives of Christians that ought to be organized and maintained according to the will of God so that our lives are a place in which God is pleased to dwell and to reveal his glory. Second, the mediators of worship, the ones who actually get to enter the presence of God, are now Christians. 
The priests of the Old Testament were entrusted with an incredible privilege and responsibility. They were called to represent God to the people and the people to God. Now, it is Christians who can come boldly before the throne of grace to intercede for the lost and dying world around them. And it is Christians who have the Holy Spirit and the example of Christ who are to display the glory and character of God the Father to the world around them. And third, the sacrifices of worship have become the crosses each Christian bears to live righteously in a hostile environment. The sacrifices of the Old Testament covered over the sin of the people so that God could dwell in their midst. Now, it is Christians who can sacrifice themselves in love so that God may dwell in and reveal himself to the world around them. Peter will say later that love covers a multitude of sins. While he says this in the context of one Christian loving another, I think that this reality can be applied to loving unbelievers as well. By loving our enemies as Christ called us to, we can cover over the sins of others, not as a saving sacrifice, but as a shadow of the saving sacrifice until Christ is revealed to them for their salvation. In all three of these roles, Jesus is our example. Jesus, the ultimate living temple of God. Jesus, the one true mediator between man and God. And Jesus, the perfect sacrifice made for the forgiveness of sins. With him as the cornerstone, the church has become the place, the mediators, and the sacrifices of worship to God. And all of this once again, is based on the fact that God, or that the church, excuse me, is now the people of God, as Peter shows in verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." A quick disclaimer here, I'm not really a dispensationalist. Actually, I'm not actually sure if I am. I, I really know just enough about the debate between dispensational and covenant theology to know that I'm treading on some statements that are important in that argument. But just know that I'm just trying to tell you what Peter's saying here, regardless of it how it fits into broader systems of theology. So please try not to read too much into my comments beyond a simple explanation of what I think is going on here in the passage. Now, if none of that made sense to you, don't worry about it. For our intents and purposes, it's not really that important. Okay, so moving on. Peter uses four phrases, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and people for his own possession, which were all used to refer to Israel and its unique identity as God's people in the Old Testament. Israel was special to God. They were in covenant with God and were supposed to represent God to the nations around them for God's glory. But remember, 
Peter, Peter's mostly writing to Gentiles, non-Jews. So after redefining the Jewish system of worship, he's now redefining God's people as the ones who are called by God out of darkness into light. This now is the one distinctive, which once again points us back to the gracious position of favor we have before the Father. We, Jew or Gentile, are his people all because of what Jesus did, period. But that position means our conduct is important, which is what Peter ends this section with in verses 11 and 12. He calls us once again, to leave behind the soul-killing ways of the world around us so that others may see what eternal, what the eternal life of God looks like and glorify him. First Peter can just about be summarized in that two-word identity I mentioned in the beginning. Christians are elect exiles. We're elect called by God, given a living hope and a waiting inheritance, born again by the word of God, which is the gospel, made into the place, the mediators and the sacrifices of worship to his glory. And we are exiles. That living hope and inheritance are in the future. We're called to be different because we live in a context that is hostile toward righteousness, which means living lives that reflect God's holiness is going to be challenging, but will ultimately be used by him to call others out of darkness into the light if we're faithful. We're elect exiles. The future is bright. The present is a challenge. But because of our gracious position of favor before the Father, what can we do? but strive to reflect his holiness as his people for his glory. Or in the words of Ephesians 4.1, how can we not but seek to live in a manner worthy of our calling? Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.